welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Isaiah chapter 41. We have been in the book of Isaiah in the last months and we've made our way through to the second portion of the book. Remember, the book is divided really into two portions, chapters 1 through 39 and then chapters 40 onwards. And last week we made the step into chapter 40. Um, I noted last week that between chapter 39 and chapter 40, not that you'd know it reading it, but there's a chronological gap of about 150 to 200 years between those two chapters. Um, The people of God had been taken into captivity, and they'd been in Babylon for nearly 70 years. They were a broken, humiliated, captive people, and many of them had actually given up on any chance of God affecting any kind of deliverance, and they had uh, assimilated, effectively becoming Babylonians. Even among those who resisted outright assimilation, there were deep and profound questions and struggles. Had God forgotten them? How else could you explain the decades of his silence and apparent inaction in the face of their troubles? And they were haunted by two persistent questions. We saw the questions stated in uh, Isaiah 40, verse 27, where the form of the Hebrew means that they were perennially asking. This wasn't just a question that came up uh, one day, you know, um, on a Thursday in October. This was something that they were asking again and again and again. Did God know and did he care? And secondly, did he have the power to change things? So a question regarding his love and a question regarding his power. And we talked last week how into that darkness and despair of their captivity came an operatic note of hope. And I played you that little clip out of Shawshank Redemption when Andy Dufresne locked himself in the office and blasted uh, Figaro out over, over the prison um, loudspeaker system and how every man in Shawshank prison stopped and listened. And as Morgan Freeman says in the movie, for a moment, every man felt free. The question, however, is what do they do when that operatic note stops? Do they simply just bow their head and go about prison life? Or did it breathe a note of hope into them that began to, uh, that they began to anticipate something different, that they began to anticipate some release? So that operatic note of hope is verse one of chapter 40 where it says, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and tell her the sad days are gone. Her sins are pardoned, and I have punished her in full for her sins. How would this captive people respond to that note of hope? Isaiah announces the fact that God has a plan to restore and to deliver and to return these people to their ancestral homeland. And he says to them, your sins have been folded over. In the Hebrew, it means to fold something doubled, where it says, I've given you double for your sins. It doesn't mean that God says, I've really exacted punishment from you. In fact, I've given you double what you should have paid. It literally in the Hebrew means to fold over, and it's probably a reference to an old custom that would take place in those days when somebody owed um, creditors a great deal of money, were in danger of bankruptcy on the city gate, which is like kind of the city square where everyone went for information. 
uh, the debts and the creditors were listed out and, and were displayed for everyone to see so that that person um, was humiliated. But what could happen was um, a friend or perhaps a family member could come, pay the debt, and that piece of paper would be folded over to indicate that it, the debt was gone. So when God says, I've given you double for your sins, it doesn't mean I've really exacted some punishment out of you. It means I've folded over your debt. It is, it's gone. And in chapter 40, he gave them two pictures that really answered their two questions. He gave them a picture of a mighty warrior with his arm bared to deliver them, and that answered their question, is he powerful enough? And he gave them a picture of a caring shepherd in whose arms were his lambs, and that was an answer to their question, does he care enough? Now, much of chapter 41, so we move into chapter 41, it takes the form of a disputation. And a disputation is an argument put forward to counter a position that somebody has adopted. Um, Some of you in academic circles will know that a disputation is often a a term used when a person has to get up and orally defend their thesis. And what he shows them is that Yahweh, the mighty creator, the one that holds the oceans in the palm of his hands, the one that can measure and weigh the mountains before whom these people and their kings are simply dust. He is able to do what he says he will do. Now, the wrong inference from this argument, how wonderfully transcendent and and ultimate our creator is, the wrong inference is he's too big to care. The right inference is he's too big to fail. Um, So chapter 41, I I think I said chapter 41 is the disputation. Chapter 40 is the disputation. Chapter 41 is a polemic against idols and idol worship. And my sermon follows that theme this morning. A polemic is an aggressive attack or a refutation of someone's opinions or or principles. So this is a polemic against idols and idol worship. These people have been in Babylon for 70 years. They have got enmeshed in the Babylonian pantheon of gods. There's a lot of idolatry even among the people of God. So Isaiah starts to direct in on that. If there's something that's going to stop his purposes being realized and this people being brought back to their ancestral homeland, this has the potential to do it. So Isaiah starts, and I'm going to read you a couple of portions, verses 1 through 6. He says, Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed. By a path his, by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. Then there's a portion that scholars call a salvation oracle. I'm going to jump that down to verses 21 through 29, where there is this second kind of court case set up. And it starts in verse 21, present your case, says the Lord, set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what's going to happen? Tell us what former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. 
Tell us what the future holds so we may know that you are God's. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. I have stirred up one from the north and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if they were a potter, as if he were a potter treading the clay. Who told of this from the beginning so we could know, or beforehand so we could say he was right? No one told of this, no one foretold it, no one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. I look, but there is no one, no one among the gods to give counsel, no one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. Both those two portions that I've just read to you are courtroom scenes. Isaiah regularly uses a kind of a forensic setting of a courtroom to try and make a case for Yahweh clear and compelling. And actually, in chapters 41 through 45, there are at least five of these trial scenes where God calls either his people or the nations or the gods of the nations to this courtroom scene. You perhaps may remember if you've been part of the series that the book of Isaiah opened with a courtroom scene where in chapter one and verse two, he says, heaven and earth, you're the jury, listen to God's case. I had children, I raised them well, they turned on me. The ox knows his boss and the mule knows the hands that feed him, but not Israel. This is a court scene. In, in this opening chapter of Isaiah, God's case is against his people. Here in chapter 41, God brings a case against the idols and the idol worshippers, both in the nations and also among his people. Within this forensic courtroom setting, there are some issues that need to be settled. And one issue that needs a final judgment made about it is... Who is the identity of the true God? Let's settle this in a court case. Who is the real God and who are merely useless idols? Who really controls history? Who is it that is reliable and trustworthy? So this court case is a profound challenge by Yahweh to the nation's idols. And so Yahweh opens the proceedings and he focuses on history and he asks who controls it. He begins talking about a particular historical figure who was beginning to reshape the political map at this particular time. At first, this figure remains unnamed, but as the case builds through the chapters, Isaiah 44 and 45 name him. And it's clear that the prophet is speaking about one who's called Cyrus the Persian. In chapter 44, verse 28, he says, When I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And in 45, 1 and 2, I will go before you, Cyrus, and level the mountains and smash down the city gates of brass and iron. So Yahweh says, this man's rising. Who is it that initiated his career? Who is his master? Who has determined what he will accomplish? And Yahweh claims that it's him. He says, I raised this one up. I, I, I called him. I have given him authority over the nations. It's not the idols that have done this. It's not the idols that guide history. It's me. 
Now, this claim raises an issue that I want to just address for a moment, and the issue, strangely as it might seem, has to do with the authorship of the book of Isaiah. I, I already mentioned at the start that there are some scholars that believe Isaiah has different authors involved, that chapters 1 through 39 are written by a man that they call Isaiah of Jerusalem. But they claim that from Isaiah 40 onwards, it's probably another prophet that actually wrote those chapters. In the Isaiahic tradition, but not Isaiah himself. And they will often, if you read commentators, they will often talk about Deutero-Isaiah or second Isaiah. And there are reasons for making that deduction. I mean, one of the reasons, obviously, for that deduction is the large chronological gap between these chapter breaks. Between 39 and 40, 200 years have gone by. Clearly, Isaiah of Jerusalem has well and truly passed away. They also say that the context and the content of the second portion of the book is remarkably different, and it must be a different author. And then finally, they would say, Isaiah of Jerusalem couldn't possibly have spoken so accurately and so profoundly to a context of which he was to have absolutely no natural knowledge. Now, some scholars, not, not all by any means, I hasten to add, but some scholars who take that position take it because they can't believe. They don't believe in prophecy. They don't believe that someone could be led by the Spirit of the Lord to speak powerfully into a future and different context. Now, as I say, not all scholars take that position, but a lot would go to that position because of that reason. Traditionally and historically, the church believed that Isaiah of Jerusalem wrote the whole book. Early records, early church fathers never talk of a second Isaiah or a deuter Isaiah. Tradition has it that Isaiah, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke accurately and profoundly about times and peoples, about contexts with whom he had no contact. So when he starts, if this is true, when he starts talking about Cyrus being raised up in the east and becoming firstly a challenger and then ultimately the destroyer of Babylon, he's speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about times 200 years after his own lifetime. If that's the case, and I said at the beginning of the study, actually, I go with tradition, then that would give weight to Yahweh's claims that he's making in this courtroom scene in Isaiah 41. He says, I direct history. I initiate history. If Isaiah was talking about all of this direction and initiation 200 years before it happened, it would give weight to Yahweh's claims. In the second courtroom scene in verses 21 through 29, he prompts or rather challenges the idols to do what he's done, predict the future. He says, you tell me something that's going to happen in the future, and then you make it happen. Now, now my point here is that if Isaiah of Jerusalem is not the author of the second section as well, and another prophet, Deutero-Isaiah, who wrote this, and he's living and ministering at the same time that this is all unfolding, how, how valid is the claim that Yahweh makes, I predicted history? 
I initiated and directed history. I mean, it was common knowledge at this time that Cyrus was the rising political power in the East. That knowledge didn't require any prophetic, a prophetic ability, just somebody who was up with the news. I mean, wouldn't the priests of Babylon make exactly the same claim about their God? Couldn't they say, no, no, it's not Yahweh who initiated it, it's our God that did it. Couldn't they, wouldn't they say those sorts of things? Wouldn't it amount just to a he said, they said kind of case? How could you possibly judge between revival, uh, rival claimants when they're both making claims that actually nobody can prove? What would amount to proof in this case? However, if you could point to the fact that you predicted these events and actually even named the individuals who would be involved in them 200 years before they happened, and when they came on the scene, you said, this is what I told you would happen, now that would be impressive. That would be, for me at least, convincing proof. So Yahweh then could truly claim, as he does in verse four, to be the one who has performed it and done it, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, am the first, and, I, and with the last, I am he. That would make that claim a powerful claim. By the way, when he makes this final claim here, I am he, immediately the Isaiah's hearers would be thinking of the Exodus. This is how Yahweh introduced himself to Israel, the great I am. So in this courtroom setting then, the transcendent creator Yahweh is almost humbly descending into some kind of identity parade of competing gods so that his true nature can be revealed. He says, all right, I'll step down into this situation. Let's, let's, let's prove this beyond any doubt. And he says, this is what I've done. And then he says to the worshipers, you bring in your idols. And, and you have to say there's a touch of irony here because what he actually says is carry them in. They can't walk. You carry them in. Put them up here. Be careful they don't topple over. And then let's see what they can do. Can you do what I have done? In verse 22, 23, let them tell us what has occurred in the years gone by or what the future holds. Yes, that's it. If you're gods, tell what will happen in the days ahead. Predict an event and make it happen. Can you do it? Well, the response, predictably, is complete silent. silence. They can't, they can't move. They can't speak. They know nothing. They've caused nothing. They claim nothing. In verse 23, can't do that. Do anything. Do something, he says. Make us fear. Make us believe that you really have some power. Do good or bad, whatever. Nothing. Absolute silence. So in verse 24, Yahweh gives his verdict. They say nothing because they are nothing. Sham gods, no gods, fool-making gods. And in verse 29, he says, nothing here. All smoke and hot air. Sham gods, hollow gods, no gods. So in chapter 40, we saw that the idols couldn't match God's or Yahweh's creative ability. And here, it's apparent it's apparent that they're equally useless in terms of being able to predict, initiate, or direct history. And he says, Yahweh alone can do this. Now, the point of this courtroom scene, the point of this polemic is clear. He's saying the community of faith should never allow these no-gods to make them afraid, to define them, 
to direct them. The pretentious claims of these idols should be resisted and rejected. Now you sit here and say, well, who cares? I mean, whatever. How does that relate to me? You know, we tend to imagine that the notion of idolatry is incredibly primitive and that it doesn't affect or doesn't relate to modern 21st century people. People bowing down before statues and totem poles, just something that doesn't happen in our culture. So all of this stuff really doesn't have any traction for me here in Hamilton in the 21st century. But I'm not at all convinced that idolatry is irrelevant to us postmoderns. Firstly, given the way we've been created as imaging creatures, we were made to image something. It says that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Having said that's true and believing that that's true, I think there's something inevitable about firstly our need for worship and then secondly about the possibility of that worship going astray and becoming idolatry. The reality is we all live for something. We must image something. We can't be, it seems, neutral about this, worship, this issue of worship or imaging. Something inevitably will catch our imagination, our affections, our fundamental allegiance. If it isn't the true God, then it will be something else. I often quote G.K. Chesterton on this matter when he says, we, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. That reality makes Isaiah's challenge to the idols of his time incredibly up-to-date and relevant for you and I, even though we are very removed from his time and his context. I don't think idolatry's gone away. Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, said there are more idols in the world than there are realities. I suspect he was correct in his observation. And it seems to me that every culture and every time is dominated by its own set of idols. Each, it seems, has its own shrines, priests, totems, and rituals. In our 21st century setting, uh, it may not look particularly religious, those shrines actually may look more like gymnasiums or office towers or sports or entertainment stadiums than they do temples. You know, we may imagine ourselves as being far more sophisticated than the ancients, but I'm not sure at all that we're any less dominated by the idols of wealth, of beauty, or of power. Money, sex, and power still rule in our society much as they did theirs. Now, we may express our devotion somewhat differently than they did. We might not physically bow down before a statue of Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. But let me ask you a question. How many young women are driven into desperation and eating disorders by an obsessive concern about their body image? How many men spend thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours in gymnasiums all over the country trying to get a six-pack that rivals Sonny Bill Williams? I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that our culture seems to be constantly agonizing over its appearance. 
We spend inordinate amounts of time and money trying to perfect it. Increasingly, numbers of people increasingly are undergoing implant or reduction surgery to create the perfect behind, bust, hairline, or nose shape. I tell you, Aphrodite is alive and well and still defining and shaping people in her image. Foolishly, it seems to me that we tend to evaluate character on the basis of beauty. Recently, in fact, just last week, I saw a research project that apparently had spent endless number of hours and lots of money trying to prove that if a politician had a certain type of round, pleasant-shaped face that he or she was more likely to be trusted by the public. Only a PhD student could come up with such a stupid research project, by the way. Sometimes I think we are researching ourselves into imbecility. At what point did we lose the common sense of earlier generations who knew never to trust a book by its cover and all that glitters is not gold? Nevertheless, beauty has an impact on our society. By the way, a culture's heroes and a culture's idols can often be determined by a culture's heroes. If you look at the heroes, you can tell something about that culture's idolatry. Do a Google search. In fact, don't, okay, don't. <laughs> it's been done for you. On people most searched on the internet, and I tell you, you got people like Kim and Kanye right up there, and it just boggles my mind that people would waste their time, but they do with regularity. If you wanna understand something about the imbecility of our culture, Google recently released the most searched how-to questions. In other generations, these questions related to, to life, to, to the meaning of life, to how do I please God? How do, how do I raise a good family? You know what the, the top ones were? How to play Pokemon Go. <laughs> how to lose weight. How to stay young. And if you can't be beautiful, then how to appear funny. Aphrodite rules. Our culture, and I suspect actually our churches as well, are full of people whose drive for success and wealth has assumed idolatrous proportions. And it's interesting to me that people who are gripped like this with that idolatrous pursuit really, if ever, recognize it for what it actually is. In 40 plus years of ministry, I've had people confess to me all kinds of things. Addictions, alcohol, gambling, drugs, pornography, but I have never in 40 years had one come to me and say, I'm covetous, I'm greedy, I'm idolatrous. Most Westerners, when asked to categorize themselves on an economic basis, invariably describe themselves as middle class. Only 2% said they were upper class. Listen, friends, the rest of the world is not fooled. People regularly elevate their careers to cosmic proportions and are willing to sacrifice any and all relationships on the altar to advance it. 
families are sacrificed and ruined as these people relentlessly pursue that position, that promotion, that partnership, or perhaps even pitifully, just the admiration of their colleagues. Those same people could pick up the Bible and read about the ancient Canaanites sacrificing their children to Baal, and they would recoil in horror at the barbarity of it without ever understanding how closely they mirror it. You say to me, Don, what on earth do you mean? Well, Baal was a fertility god. He was the god who controlled the wind and the rain and the weather. And in an agrarian society, he was the one who ultimately determined that society's prosperity. It was considered necessary to sacrifice a child or two to ensure their ongoing prosperity and success. Likewise, in our culture, tragically, children often become or take a distant second place in their parents' ambitions and drives for success, the ensuring and with the ensuring prosperity that they think will result from that. Just again, this last week, there was an article in the news about a double gold medal winning athlete in the London 2012 Olympics who confessed to having an abortion before the Olympics so her pregnancy wouldn't hinder her pursuit for gold, and she went on to say, I literally don't know of another female track and field athlete who hasn't had an abortion. Children being sacrificed to Baal isn't anywhere near as ancient as you think it might be. Idolatry is alive and well in our 21st century culture. It's as old as the Bible, it's as recent as yesterday's news and it remains just as idolatrous. By the way, that woman has since become a believer, and she's written a book about the grace of God and what, the, and, and what all of this taught her, and she went on to say, I, I, I was deeply, deeply scarred by that, and remain so, even though God is healing me and has shown me his grace. But people, we aren't that different from the ancients. We are just as susceptible to idolatry as they were. Idols are often good things that we've mistakenly allowed to become ultimate things. It's something that has become more important to us than virtually anything else. It's something that absorbs our heart and our imaginations, and ultimately we require them to give us the things that only God can give us, identity, security, the fulfillment of our dreams and hopes. They require from us in turn our passion, our energy, our emotional and financial resources. Spiritual allegiance and worship can often be measured in time, energy, and money. An idol is something that you look at and say, if I could just have that, then my life would have meaning. If I could just have that position, have that person as my spouse, have that amount of money coming in, then I would be significant. I would have value. Some of you may remember a tennis star. Um, perhaps some of you won't because it's the 1970s or 80s, but a girl called Chris Everett Lloyd. She was a leading player, and as Chris Everett Lloyd contemplated retire retirement, she confessed to an interviewer, and she said, winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins and the applause in order to have identity. That's what idolatry is all about. Our need, for example, acceptance isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. 
But when it becomes the cosmic thing, when it becomes the ultimate thing, it's idolatrous. C.S. Lewis wrote an incredibly profound essay that he called The Inner Ring. Some of you may have read it. He spoke about our drive for acceptance, and he said this, in all people's lives at certain periods, and in many men's lives at all periods, between infancy and old age, one of the dominant elements is the desire to be inside the inner ring and the terror of being left outside it. The inner ring isn't just something that happens to teenagers at school. The inner ring is in pretty much all of our human interactions because the inner ring isn't evil in itself. Inner rings are inevitable in human relationships. But the desire, the desperate need to be considered an insider, part of an inner ring, can end up being idolatrous. And Lewis notes that such an idolatrous drive can cause people to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to gain entry. He says, of all passions, the passions for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. He goes on to talk about the number of people who were introduced to anything from smoking to alcohol to losing their virginity over the desire to be in the ring is innumerable. He also insightfully observes that such idolatry will never ever produce what it promises. Even when you get into the inner ring that you are pursuing, he says the rainbow's end will still be ahead of you. The newly attained ring will soon be the old ring. The old ring will now be the on, only the drab background for your new endeavor to enter another ring. And I, I think Lewis has here hit upon the constant in idolatry, and that is they inevitably result in cosmic disappointment. They do not, they cannot keep their promises. Their lie is, if I can just have and you fill in the blank, then I will be happy, worthwhile, and significant. And it won't make any difference, I tell you. Outside of God, it won't make any difference. Jacob in the Old Testament, I think many of you will know the story, but he, just, he said, if I can just have Rachel, if I can just have Rachel as my wife, everything in my world will be okay. And he worked himself to the bone for seven years so that he could get Rachel. On his long-awaited marriage night, he went to bed with the one that he thought was Rachel. And in the morning, the scripture says, behold, it was Leah. And one commentator insightfully noted, this incident is a miniature of our disillusionment from Eden onwards. It means no matter what it is outside of God that we put our trust in and our hopes on in the morning, it's always Leah and never Rachel. The Bible uses three basic metaphors to describe how people relate to idols. They love their idols. And the Bible uses the metaphor of marriage to describe this love, likens idolatry to marital unfaithfulness. Secondly, they trust their idols. And the Bible uses a religious metaphor to show how we treat idols as saviors and redeemers. And they obey their idols. And the Bible uses political metaphors to show how idols become our Lord and Master. 
Now, you might be thinking, well, okay, um, okay, there must be a bit of idolatry around. I get where you're coming from. But if they are as hard to discern as you seem to be implying, how might I know they're a factor in my life? What, what would be some telltale signs that could indicate, actually, my allegiance isn't placed exactly where I thought it might be? Well, let me briefly and in conclusion offer you a couple of brief thoughts. Number one, it's highly likely that perhaps your spouse or maybe a faithful friend might have already flagged this issue with you, perhaps more than once, with comments like, don't you think you're spending too much time, energy, and money on, and they will name something. Or saying something like, you know, we've got no other conversation in this household. This is the only thing that is ever talked about in this household. It's the only thing that you're passionate about. With everything else, it's like, yeah, whatever, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But with this, whoa, you come alive. Suddenly, I see light in your eyes. Now, maybe you haven't got a faithful friend who would say that, but I trust that your spouse might. And they'd say something to you like, we don't need the extra money or the things this extra money might, might buy. The kids would like to have you around. More often than not, by the way, we respond defensively. Sounds like I've been down this road, doesn't it? A telltale sign, by the way. And related to number one, but separate from it, is our uncontrollable emotions may indicate the presence of idolatry. Your explosive anger, your deep despair may be a hint at the presence of what some people call our disordered loves. Remember in Daniel chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar makes, makes this idol and he gets everybody to bow down to it and the three young Hebrew boys refuse and it says in Daniel three verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and a fury. When idolatry is present, we are over-invested in our projects and we tend to become quickly or inordinately angry and angered at people who challenge us in terms of our direction or who balk at the same commitment that we are giving to that project. And anger followed by violence is a fairly sure sign of the presence of something that's completely disordered. You pull your emotions up by the roots and examine them because you may well find idols attached to them. The loss of a dream or a friend or a relationship or perhaps even a fortune probably will cause sorrow and in some cases, deep grief. However, there's a very big difference between normal sorrow and deep despair. Despair is inconsolable because it comes from losing something that has ultimate meaning. In the financial crashes of every, every financial crash from the Great Depression through to the, you know, the, the 90s crashes, you read of people who throw themselves out of buildings, who take a gun out of their office drawer and blow their head out. They've lost their fortune. They've lost their ultimate. They can see nothing beyond it. The absolute despair that comes from losing an ultimate is not the same as a genuine, real, and needful sorrow that comes from having lost something that is dear to you. They are different things. Examine your emotions. Number, thir number three, examine your thought patterns. Archbishop William Temple once said, your religion, your God, is what you do with your solitude. Where do your thoughts go effortlessly or habitually when nothing is demanding your attention? 
I'm, I'm not talking here, by the way, about our odd daydream, which all of us are subject to. I'm talking about those habitual roots to which you return for comfort, consolation, and nourishment. What is it that feeds you? And your thought patterns can tell you. Number four, how do you spend your time, your energy, and your money? I think I said this earlier in this uh, series, but Jesus said, show me your bank statement, and I'll show you your heart. You say, I don't remember reading that. Well, obviously, it's a paraphrase. He said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The truth is that money and energy flows effortlessly toward our heart's greatest love. It's the way we work. Isaiah, in his polemic, challenged the community of faith in his day. And what I've tried to do this morning is to challenge the community of faith in mine. He said, idols are no God. They cannot produce what they promise. They will promise you Rachel, but in the morning you'll have Leah, metaphorically speaking. It'll never fulfill your dreams. They can't control history. They can't initiate it. They can't even know it. You might think if I can just get enough money, I can control my future. No, you can't. Proverbs says money takes wings and flies out the door. People say money speaks. It does. It generally says, bye. <laughs> Isaiah is saying, Yahweh alone is worthy of our love, worthy of our trust, worthy of our obedience. If the deliverance God has promised is ever going to come to pass, then we have to allow him in his grace and his mercy and his power first to challenge our disordered loves and then to heal them. That's what he wants to do. So I don't, okay, you've put your finger on a couple of things in my life. How do, what, where, where do I go from here? Well, you bring them before him and say, Lord, I think this is disordered. I'm not sure that I have the power to break it, but I'm asking you to come in your grace. I lay it at your feet. Would you begin to turn this around? Would you begin to change it? Would you begin to capture the allegiance of my heart so that those other things, good as they may be, actually find themselves in their right places and not in the wrong places? And part of that is about worship. Part of that is we image what we worship. And it's one of the reasons here at Gateway we put so much emphasis on our worship, why we say, let's stand, let's enter into worship. Please don't sit back. Be drawn in, lift your heart, lift your hands, get involved in worship because there is something about worship that transforms. So let's do that this morning, shall we? Let's stand. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.